0: Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and rat wrangling villainess, Alisa Quitney. And
1: I'm story expert and nightmare with a dream, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Playing House, episode number eight from Netflix's The Sandman, season one.
0: Playing House was written by Vanessa Benton, Neil Gaiman, and David S. Goyer, and directed
1: by Andre Baez. It's not what you did, it's what you are. Time to wake up.
0: In Playing House, Rose strolls into the Dream King's audience chamber, which appears to offend Lucien, but only serves to fascinate a honey-voiced Morpheus. Having overheard Dream discussing Jed, she asks for more information. Morpheus says he believes that Jed is with one of his missing nightmares. Perhaps they can help each other. If you can find me, he tells her, standing close enough to launch a fanfic, you can find your brother. He sends her back to the waking world, reassuring her that Matthew the Raven will be there with her, a proxy for Dream himself. Dream, we quickly learn, is right about Galt. Disguised as Miranda, Jed's mother, the nightmare is playing the part of the computer-savvy mentor, while Jed lives out a dream in which he is the colorfully garbed superhero called the Sandman. Jed wakes from a battle with the rat hordes of the villainous Pied Piper, only to find a reality that is far worse. He's been locked in the basement by the sadistic Barnaby, and a rat has bitten him on the hand. Not far from the basement where Jed is being held prisoner, Rose prints out flyers with an old picture of her brother, and Hal and the other residents of the house promise to help pass them out. She speaks with unity, unaware that her grandmother's journalist visitor is really the Corinthian who is searching for clues as to Rose's whereabouts. Lyda, who sleeps next to Rose, is discovering an unexpected perk to being in the vicinity of a vortex. In her dreams, she and her dead husband Hector are living out a luxury mattress commercial of a life where the silky pajamas, the billowing curtains, and the walls of the minimalist dream house are all done in exquisitely nuanced shades of white. Outside the house, there are perfectly manicured, gently rolling hills. If Lida wants, Hector suggests, they could live this way forever. Still, Lida wakes up long enough to pay a return visit to the foster agency, where she uses guile and charm to convince the morose salad-eating pencil pusher to actually pay Jed an in-person welfare visit. Evil Barnaby and woman-on-the-verge-of-a-nervous-breakdown Clarice are alarmed to learn that a social worker is actually going to visit them but the clueless Ms. Rubio doesn't seem to notice anything amiss with the couple and their LLB meets the shining vibe. Jed risks his neck to pass the woman a note, but Barnaby catches him. Luckily for Jed, the Corinthian comes to the rescue. The toothy-eyed nightmare has spotted Rose with Matthew the Raven, but couldn't risk getting closer without alerting the Raven's boss. A quick flirt with Hal and the Corinthian has the flyer, which he uses to track down the foster agency. After that... Jed's location is just an eyeball snack away. Rose, meanwhile, falls asleep and wanders through her neighbor's dreams. Hal Strip teases off his face, first as a drag queen, then as himself. Ken dreams of humiliation and Barbie's indifference. Zelda dreams of literary romance and Chaldal wanders through a graveyard. Or perhaps that was the other way around. Barbie lives out an epic fantasy far richer than her waking life and Rose meets Morpheus and finally locates her brother in his superhero dream. While Sandman confronts Galt, his errant nightmare, Jed has time to give Rose a final clue as to his real-life whereabouts before Dream wakes him, separating the siblings. Following the dream clues, Rose arrives at Barnaby and Clarice's home just in time to see the police bringing out two dead bodies. Dream has more success in locating his prodigal nightmare but Galt strikes a nerve when she tells him she wants to change. She wants to be a dream and to inspire instead of instilling fear, and she clearly ruffles the Dream King's feathers when she points out that few of his dreaming subjects have returned out of affection. His unmaking of Galt also reveals a rift between himself and the one subject who clearly does hold him in affection, Lucien. Speaking of errant nightmares, the Corinthian arrives just in time to save Jed from a brutal beating. As the dentally-talented Big Bad and the defrocked Pseudo-Sandman drive off in a convertible, both are clearly thrilled to find their luck has changed. Light awakes as well, also thrilled to discover that her dream of being pregnant has become a reality.
1: All right, Elisa, here we are at Playing House. We are on the downward slide of this uh, of this season, which is not a poke at quality. It's just that we're moving, um, you know, into the last few episodes. Uh, what's your response to this? How do you feel about this episode? Well, I
0: loved the sequence where Rose is wandering through all of her neighbor's dreams. And, you know, speaking of, of themes of dreams and houses... I used to always walk through Manhattan where I grew up looking at the lights in other people's windows at night and wondering what lives were going on in there. And and this idea of what what is someone's interior life that is delicious and rich. Um, Again, I think the Corinthian kind of steals the show. I, I love him. He is he is such delectable naughtiness. But
1: what about you? Well, the thing that I love most of all in this entire season is Galt. And I mean, there's a lot of competition for the things that I love a lot in this season. But Galt, first of all, was not in the comics. We didn't have that story in the comics. Um, Here, I love it so much. It absolutely delights me. Everything about her from the actress playing the role to the design of the, the character themselves. It's just so incredibly wonderful. So I was very, very excited. I am very excited that we get to talk about Galt. Um, in this episode because I've been waiting for that forever. Uh, but yeah, like Rose and Dream walking through everybody's dreams. One of my favorite things is when we have Dream kind of jumping, leapfrogging, you know, through people's dreams to get to where he needs to go. The world building around the dreaming, I think, is also one of my favorite things. Like I can't, I don't know, it's really hard to pick an absolute favorite thing. So whatever is my favorite thing in the moment is the thing that I'm going for. Um, but yeah, I just I absolutely loved a lot Lot of that. I thought that there were a lot of uh, really neat kind of like visual things that were going on um, in this episode, which leads us into our discussion of this episode and um, and like the visual work again. You know, we had talked before about the, uh, you know, how beautiful uh, the and like the concept of the shifting stained glass and the dreaming and Morpheus's throne room and how awesome that is. Um, the Galt design here, that black skin, so beautiful with that like shifting I don't even know what it is it looks like a universal sky like space you know like within her yeah
0: absolutely I'm so glad you pointed that out because that her her very dark complexion and the universe underneath feels like a Dave McKean cover more than anything else I've seen so far. Yes, it
1: does. It does. It has that kind of collage mixed media sort of feel to it. And it's so incredibly beautiful. And I honestly, like, again, I'm not, like, as I've said like a million times on this podcast, people are saying, here, I'm not a visuals person. You know, I respond to the characters and what they're doing and what that story movement is. But I went back and rewound that segment where Galt is fighting with Morpheus on the street. Right. Just grappling. And then, you know, where she is Jed's mom and she's playing that role for him and she's caring for him. And I don't want to instill fear anymore. The idea that, you know, then, you know, Morpheus, we don't get to choose how we are made, yada, yada, yada. Like all of the stuff that was happening in that scene, I absolutely loved. But the visual of her, how beautiful she is, you know, that that beautiful Glistening dark skin with the universe shifting underneath it—it it was so beautiful. I I cannot tell you. Like I want a whole series that's just gold. I I can see that she. Well, she mm-hmm. wants to be
0: a dream and not a nightmare, which is a really interesting theme for a series. And I think that Gregory the Gargoyle, we also learn, had started mm-hmm. out as a nightmare and became a dream. So. I wonder if it goes the opposite
1: way, too, and we have any dreams who become nightmares. That world building has so much potential. There's so many stories that could be told in that world building, and there are. There's tons of comics that we still have yet to talk about. I know there's a million other things that we're going to talk about, but the the concept of this um, just completely spoke to me. Absolutely loved it. Um, you know, we've got, uh, we're continuing to talk about the visuals, right? The face pulling with Hal. Um, the, like, first it's, you know, it's it's him. And then uh, what was the second phase? that he pulled uh
0: it was so the first was the drag queen face the drag that he queen and the off. second
1: was him and the second yeah. is
0: him and then it was funny i went back to the comic in the comic mm-hmm. book um and perhaps there were legal things that made this uh not not right. doable but first he is judy garland mm-hmm. a great drag uh icon and then he mm-hmm. pulls off that face and is the wicked witch of the west, Margaret Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And then he pulls off and I'm not sure but I think he might be the wizard himself or he might be himself. Um but I love I love that pulling off of faces and it reminded mm-hmm. me of okay, so there is a little known movie called The Monster Club and it's, it's one of those, you know, Vincent Price, who is a bit of a hired gun in his day, did lots and lots of uh, horror movies. And in this one, there is just one sequence that um, has a striptease. So it starts out with a woman who's got a kind of polished 80s homage to the 1940s look. And she does a little strip, nice strip, by the way, nice dancing. Mm-hmm. And then... When she takes off her top, it goes into silhouette. So she's all in black. So you can't see, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't see the details. But she's clearly naked and topless now. And then she just starts pulling off her skin. But with the same, the animation is done so beautifully for the 1970s. (laughs) Because the animation is is moving the way the dancer moved. Meanwhile, there's this awesome song. um, I can't remember the name. Somebody's going to, I should have written it down. But it's, I'm a stripper. And it's mm-hmm. some like kick-ass Bonnie Raitt-style singer saying, "I'm a stripper," and uh, <laughs> it's anyway. Uh, every mm-hmm. there is a YouTube. Uh, I think we could put the link maybe in our show notes, but it's oh sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I that is that is nothing other than me free associating how much I
1: love me a good horror comedy face <laughs> or body
0: st- strip off
1: it's pretty cool and then oh my goodness when he tears off his own face and there's just the the skin and bones and muscle and viscera and everything like right in there um it was so good so creepy so like easily done, right? You know, like so quickly and easily done, which gives you that dream sense, right, of, of the metaphor of pulling off your face as opposed to the actuality of it. And then that sound work in there when he's pulling off the face. Oh yes. my God, it's so beautifully done.
0: And the line, which is
1: also from the comic,
0: mm-hmm. Mama's yeah. running out of hands. And the idea mm-hmm. of, I mean, I've always loved that T.S. Eliot line of preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet and how there's another, obviously, Sandman story that deals with such facades. I don't know if we'll ever Mm -hmm. get it. But um, (laughs) I, I think it is both visually interesting, gross body horror humor, and also has a Deeper resonance for me, and so that to me is the tiramisu of of satisfaction.
1: It is. It's so great and gross and interesting and thematic, and there's just so much. And when he talks about mommy, like there's so much going on there. We got mother issues. We got everything. And again, like you know, you were talking about how you like to you know be able to eat with the the chopsticks rather than the spoon, right? This is just left there, like, yes. and you could definitely go into that dream and do some analysis and. Get Get some real deep understanding of how. Uh,
0: and I have to say, I think the way you feel about Galt, I feel about mm-hmm. Hal. And again, this is another one of those moments where I think maybe I'm getting older because I tend to resonate a lot more now with the characters who are not in their first youth, shall we say.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, And it's it's fun to uh, work with those characters. I remember watching Hal and just loving the gray on top of the the black hair to see him in that in both spaces at once. He is a character of great duality, you know, duality with gender expression, duality with his, you know, youthful approach to life. And yet, you know, he owns this space. He owns this house. He's a grown adult. He's got the gray hair coming in. There's Lots of really neat stuff happening with Hal.
0: Is it gray hair? Is it sort of streaks of I don't it's know what
1: he's silver? I don't know. Yeah, it I looks think it silvery. Be, mm-hmm.
0: Well, he he feels to me like a David Sedaris character. Mm-hmm. Like there's something David Sedaris about him, which he does is, have some of that energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, I've, I've been listening to a lot of David Sedaris lately, and it. it I'm sorry, I just got distracted by the joke, he's which begins with I, I won't I won't give the punchline, but the. the no, I can't even say the joke. It's kind of dirty. I can't even say the punchline. I've been obsessed with this. It involves
1: Willie Nelson. Anyway. Okay. Um, <laughs> So those of you out there who are David Sedaris fans, you may know what she's talking about. And those who aren't, highly recommended. Two thumbs up. This is not a, an you know, essay writing uh, podcast, but definitely love David Sedaris. Uh, one of the, um, the things, the connections that you made in this, which I absolutely love. Like we have these scripts and we will put these little headlines in because we're writers and we like to write these little topic headlines and, and be cute with them. And we almost very rarely actually make them part of the thing itself. But here is the topic. Topic that Elisa brought in here. L.L. Bean meets The Shining. And I absolutely love that as a description of the overall just disjointed weirdness that is Clarice and Barnaby and that whole existence.
0: Oh, yes. I mean, on, mm-hmm. the, on the one hand, I think it's interesting. One of the things that's happened mm-hmm. to my mind when uh, in the casting. So in the original comic, uh, Clarice and Barnaby are awful white people. And Jed is not an awful white person, but now that you know he is black and they are white, it it highlights some other things. And I think what I realize is how much they're they're attractive people. They're both handsome people, and, right? And they're clean cut looking in mm-hmm. in a very LL Bean Lands End catalog kind of way. I can just mm-hmm. see them modeling, you know, seasonal corduroy jackets mm-hmm. and. And yet there is this, you know, obvious creepiness. In fact, Mm -hmm. I, I think the basement where Jed is being held prisoner, there is something creepy about the fact that it doesn't seem, okay, well, frankly, it doesn't seem as creepy as some of the basements in houses where I've lived. I've lived in some really old houses where there are unfinished basements and there was a boiler in one that... I remember the boiler repairman came down. He said, how old is this? And I said, it used to be on the Titanic. And he said, really? (laughs) I said, no. Um, But it looked like it could have been. And Mm -hmm. so the creepiness really comes from the fact that these look like nice people. And that brings me to the fact that sometimes – in, in you know, if you believe in such a, a thing as, you know, baked in racism, where the racism has a little bit mm-hmm. been, you know, like microplastics, it's accidentally been baked into the pie crust. No one intended for it to be there, or some people may yeah. have intended for it to be there. <laughs> but you certainly didn't intend to have microplastics and racism in your pie mm-hmm. crust. But mm-hmm. the fact that here are these clean cut, blonde, white people and Ms. Rubio, seems to trust them. She seems, okay, so I have, this is so, she is so frustrating (laughs) to me, Ms. Rubio. And I know it's not Mm -hmm. her fault because, you know, as Jessica Rabbit said, you know, I was, I was drawn this way. But why Mm -hmm. does Ms. Rubio ask the kid to leave so she can be alone with the parents? Don't, don't social workers, mm-hmm. aren't they supposed to ask the parents to leave so you can be alone with a kid?
1: I think so. There is something um, that feels a little off about her in general, the way that she was with Rose, the fact that they had to really fight to get this visit, the fact that clearly they're not visiting very often um, because when she's coming, it is quite the event for this uh, for this couple. Um, and we do like, you know, like when you're talking about the the how it adds to the creepiness when the, the look of something is dissonant from the reality. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, like one of these things that I, I kind of like about this is that the look of it, you know, nice little suburban home, you know, everything seems okay, but it's clearly very, very dark on the inside. And I think that that dissonance adds to that. Um, and here we have a social worker who, you know, for could be, overwhelmed or whatever but it doesn't seem like everything is is really working the way that it should
0: absolutely and i think the actress is very good there's a silent moment when lida leaves having you know expertly manipulated her in her brief mm-hmm. respite from you know white white billowy sheet sex um and <laughs> and you see Ms. rubio kind of thinking oh yeah, what the hell? Once every seven years, I probably should check in on this kid. Right. I love the choice, whoever made it, to have her joylessly eating salad. I, I just want to now just say I am a salad lover. I do love a good mm-hmm. salad. If you load enough yummy things into a salad, um, you know, little bits of melon mm-hmm. and seeds and cheeses, it, a salad can be a joy. Mm-hmm. Ms. Rubio's salad looks like one of the most joyless salads I have ever seen.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that that is, again, one, another one of these little details that really does kind of like add to the overall gestalt of the whole thing. Um, one of the things, though, that, of course, is intended to be creepy, looks creepy and is creepy is the Corinthian who I nicknamed Corey. Now he's just Corey to me. Um I I have to say, like, I do not mind that he ate Barnaby or the foster care lady. Like I'm not I'm not having a problem with any of that. Um but when he drives off with Jed at the end like, I know that's how the story needs to go. I got mad in the comics. I get mad here. I just want the kids safe. Uh, we've got this endless damseling of Jed, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the podcast in um, in Lucian's library. Uh, but, you know, I just want this kid safe. I just want him safe. And then it's, it's frying pan to fire to hellfire with this kid, constantly bouncing out of one bad situation into a worse one.
0: Yes, I, I completely understand that. I think... So one of my favorite things is when we're shown stuff instead of mm-hmm. being told it. And the, yeah. the way that the Corinthian sits on Ms. Rubio's desk and eats her eyeballs, it's just the opposite uh, of of how Ms. Rubio ate the salad. He is yeah. just, you know, there. there's... Who among us has not just, you know, savored something, you're dripping all over the paperwork, but who cares? Because it's delish. <laughs> and he's, which brings me to, I think, a slightly unintended effect with, with the Corinthian, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, he's so stylish. Uh, mm-hmm. Besides Johanna Constantine, he's the most stylish coat wearing fella yep. here. Mm-hmm. And he's cheeky. And he's mm-hmm. enjoying himself, which makes him functionally an antihero. I think right. I, if you know, I you know, my new theme is where is the Corinthian fanfic? I, I didn't see it so much in the <laughs> comics, but um yeah. you know, I think I think there's gonna be some serious Corinthian fanfic here.
1: There's a lot of hot Corinthian stuff happening this season, and I can definitely see. I think if the fanfic is not already out there, I will be expecting it soon, um, because the, uh, the actor playing the role definitely brings that level of charisma and charm, the kind of villain that you know is dangerous and horrible, but also really compelling to watch, really kind of cute, and sometimes you can't help... But giggle a little bit at at what he does. And the fact that he doesn't kill everyone, right? He didn't kill the house sitter, Rose's house sitter. You know, the message needs to be, you know, sent. So he'll leave people alive when it suits his purpose. But the fact that he doesn't kill absolutely everyone, like, leaves this space for us to think, maybe there's something in him that is, you know, like the, the bad boy worth saving kind of thing, which is a very dangerous uh, and, thing. Oh, yes. But
0: yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and I just want to say, obviously, in real life, even if the guy has normal looking eyes, you know, don't,
1: don't try and reform a bad boy. <laughs> don't try and reform a bad boy. Save that for the fiction. Enjoy it in the fiction and let that be your, uh, you know, getting that fix. Oh, oh uh, so yes. a mm-hmm. real life bad boy would be mm-hmm. freaking Barnaby. Oh, d- yeah. I think that's probably how Clarice and Barnaby ended up together, is that she was trying to save the bad boy and it ended up just absolutely yes. destroying yes. her. He won't yeah. eat my eyeballs. He He loves me. He loves me. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But mama, I love him. Anyway, um, but, you know, it comes down to this, too, where it's we're watching Clarice and Barnaby and Clarice doesn't have that much going on in here, aside from looking at her being completely terrified most of the time. Um, But the big question, I think, that comes up, especially for people who haven't lived through situations of domestic abuse, is, uh, you know, with like, why didn't she leave him? Why didn't she grab Jed and run? Why didn't she stop him? Why didn't why didn't she do something? And the thing is, in situations like that, like I have empathy for Clarice because when you're in a traumatic situation, there's basically like four responses: there's fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, right? And she's clearly in freeze, like deeply in freeze. And you see her every now and again. I think the actress did such a wonderful job of expressing that. Internal conflict. Like for her to even say so much as boo to Barnaby is a huge move for her. It's completely ineffectual. She doesn't manage to make anything any better for Jed at all. But she does say something, and then he quickly shuts her down, and she's clearly terrified of him. So we see what he does to Jed. We don't see what he does to her, but definitely that's a chopstick situation where if you look at it, you can pretty much figure out from context clues that what is happening between Barnaby and Clarice is deeply, deeply abusive.
0: Absolutely. And I think, I, I imagine that the Corinthian enjoyed Barnaby more. I mean, for a variety so. of different reasons. But he, <laughs> he, yeah, I just think he would have relished that. Well, I was thinking mm-hmm. about learned helplessness and, mm-hmm. you know, and the way in which if you try to do something and you're really prevented at a certain point, the yeah. the cage can be opened and you will no longer try to get out and that is yeah the most tragic thing whatever else you can say about jed he he doesn't get to the stage where he he has mm-hmm. stopped trying. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, is that again, you know, um, fiction is not answerable to reality. We know these things are real and true in real life um, and fiction is not necessarily answerable to that. But I think that they did a good job of making that response also believable. And that's really what you are answerable to in fiction is believability. You know, we and, and again, it's a chopstick thing. You can figure all of that stuff out by watching it. I can see why people would ask that question. Why didn't Clarice stop him? Um, but I think that that question is absolutely answered in the context of everything that's going on in there.
0: Yes, I agree. I think that the relationship between Barnaby and, and Clarice feels absolutely authentic. There's there's some other relationship stuff going on between other people that I thought was a little less perhaps successful.
1: Well, why don't we talk about that in Lucien's library, which will be coming in after this break. If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash This episode of
0: Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah,
1: Shelley, stephania and stephanie all chipperish supporters get access to the chipperish discord chat where you can pop in meet other sandman fans and chat with the chipperish creators and at ten dollars a month and up you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows thank you to our intrepid editor jack cram whose time and skill is paid for through your support
0: if you'd like to support endless and chipperish media please visit patreon.com chipperish and support us today
1: all right. So here we are in Lucianne's library note. There may be some mild spoilers here. We're going to talk about them- thematic stuff. We're going to talk about behind the scenes kind of stuff and extra textual stuff. So this is where we kind of get a little bit deeper into our uh, discussion of this. And so, Elisa, you were just talking about um, about believability and, and things outside the text. So so what do you have for us?
0: OK, so my my whole heading for this this subject is creatures of desire, because as we know, uh, Rose is kind of a creature of desire. She mm-hmm. is. She is. Uh, you know. She is. She is part of desire's machinations, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a whole sequence here where I can see that. You know, here's Morpheus and Rose, and oh, you want to find Jed. I want to find Galt. Let's. Mm-hmm. You know. Let's join forces. And there's some sexy standing close. And Tom Sturridge is giving some melty, melty voice here. He he warms mm-hmm. his voice. There's almost like a rom-com kind of of sense to it, except that Rose is just not giving any flirty vibes back. And I know that yeah. you were sort of talking in a previous episode about how you were pleased that she's not as sexualized as in the comic. Mm-hmm. But, oh, I don't know, color me, color me sluttish. But I kind of <laughs> miss some of the flirty vibes. Mm-hmm. In, in romance, I have a favorite trope, which is kiss you or kill you, which of yeah. course probably explains my deep love of the Corinthian here. Uh, <laughs> even though I know my eyeballs probably wouldn't be his first choice. <laughs> but anyway, uh, in the Comics, I got more of a vibe between Morpheus and Rose, in mm-hmm. just the there's a flying scene. Oops, um, well, I should have spoiler spoilered that because I guess that. Uh, but anyway, I I think there's one thing that romance gets right that almost everybody else gets wrong about desire. You know, there has mm-hmm. to be some conflict, and it's you know if, for people if you're writing romance, you know that mm-hmm. if you want to show that these people seriously seriously want to get horizontal with each other or you know vertical or tangential with each other uh then you need to have some of that sense of erotic charge of taboo of danger if you want to show that these people are not just banging each other then you have to have Mm -hmm. the sense of fit and Mm -hmm. foil that that shows how these characters can fit and grow together but i just i i didn't get that here. And this sent mm-hmm. me off on a ridiculous Ted Lasso tangent. Can I? Can
1: I? <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. All Let's right. get extra textual. You, I, I love it. Yeah, you, you watch Ted Lasso, right? I've watched the entire series probably like four times. Yes, I love it.
0: <laughs> okay. So I was trying to get my son to watch Ted Lasso and I, I've been mm-hmm. rewatching it. He got hooked. When I described it to him, he said, sports, mom, you? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, no, it's not about the sports. But anyway, I was rewatching it, and I had an Aha Desire uh, epiphany, which is mm-hmm. uh, about Ted and uh, Sassy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. this, this it reminded me, and now I'm going to go even more extra textual. I know that Jenny Cruzy had this theory for a long time that the Buffy writers didn't understand the Spike Buffy metaphor, and they kept thinking mm-hmm. it was unhealthy, and they have the the sex where they fall through the yeah, floors of mm-hmm. this rotting house as if that's a destructive thing. But, you know, if your house is rotting, it's good to fall to the, the foundation <laughs> of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back to Ted Lasso. So there's a scene where Ted Lasso is waiting to sign divorce papers and he's just getting rattled and we see a side of him we've never seen as mm-hmm. – physicalized by his mussed hair falling in his face. Yeah. And I, I am a sucker for mussy hair. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's that, it's, it, and it's not mussy like moost mussy. It's just like all of a sudden mm. he's savage. He snaps at Nate. Mm-hmm. But then when Sassy comes in, he, um, he, he is sort of a little taken aback and she clearly <laughs> is more leading the way to their one night stand. Later, in another episode, put your fingers in your ears if you haven't seen this, la la la. Um, So Sassy says to Rebecca, you know, she, Rebecca says, was he like that with all his folksy wisdom? Mm -hmm. And Sassy says, all throughout, he was so eager to please. It was fabulous. And I was thinking, because that's (laughs) the wrong button. We. You know, I, again, I mean, of taste, there is nothing written, but all the women I've talked to in my life of Mm -hmm. talking about smexiness, yes, you you want a man who is wanting to please you, but you want some of that sense of desire and desire Mm -hmm. is not polite. It is not civilized. It's, it's got that whole vibe of impatience and Mm -hmm. a little selfishness. Um, of mm-hmm. of wanting to please yourself as well as the other person, so I think there was sort of a mixed opportunity to tie mm-hmm. in Ted's deeper sexuality with dropping the nice guy facade.
1: Oh yeah, mm-hmm.
0: which brings me all the way back to <laughs> this. So I am not feeling that Rose Morpheus vibe, although Storage is mm-hmm. definitely doing his best. Um, <laughs> but I just I. I think that in this story, which is so much driven by desire, the strongest mm-hmm. erotic desire
1: is coming from the collectors. <sighs> That's very interesting. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. Um, I And yeah, when you get to Hector and Lida, too, where they've got all of this, you know, this grief, this separation, like there's all of this drama there. Um, but it does feel a little bit anodyne. Like, it doesn't feel terribly sexy, you know, the two of them being together. Although, like, it's nice, you feel light as grief and everything. But, um, and with Rose, you know, you're right. Rose is not here for Morpheus's smoldering looks, you know. Rose is not in this for that. She's not interested for whatever reasons, you know. Um, and And definitely I remember that being in the comics um, and I I didn't love it in the comics um, because I felt like Rose was basically... Um, not not deeply characterized. Um, But it is I think kind of funny that we do get that. We do get that a lot from, from Tom Sturridge. And he also may be one of those people just like, you know has that with everybody. He is, you know, brooding and mysterious and sexy. But I definitely felt that a- elevated in this scene. And for Rose to not have any time for any of it, I kind of liked that. It was fun. I mean, I definitely understand the frustration as a romance writer myself. I love those romance moments but it has to be right you know and the rose and morpheus thing i always i never really felt it even in the comics then if she
0: sassed him back you know if she was Mm -hmm, early diane to sam on cheers i feel older (laughs) and older as this episode is going by finally like my references are going to be in the lovely
1: silent film with gloria swanson you know (laughs) Yeah, we're getting older as we go. But yeah, no, I definitely see, like, if she had... um, If there had been success, there would have been that chemistry. But to see chemistry come so much from one side and then not connect with the other side, to me, was kind of funny. Um, And so, yeah, like, part of me kind of appreciated that. Like, I like Morpheus and everything. And I'm all for, you know, Morpheus having, like, the romantic vibes and everything. When we get with the right person, the person who, you know, will... um, It will mesh with that energy. And Rose just doesn't. And you know what? I don't hate it. I really don't. I really don't. Um, but the thing in this that um, that kind of threw me and I mentioned it a little bit earlier in the podcast, um, was the damseling of Jed. Um, you know, the story, like, one of the things that we talk about a lot, like, with, you know, women characters is that damseling where we have a character who's basically not really built up or developed, but are just there so that we worry about them, so that our main character, to motivate the main character's story, right? In this case, it's Rose. You know, Rose is really worried about her little brother. They do have that, uh, one scene early on in, in this storyline, you know, where he's a small child, he's they're going away, she's going with the mother, he's going with the dad. And then we just they just get separated and they don't have that relationship. Um, and so here we have Jed in this truly, truly horrible situation. Um, and we have him tumbling out of one damselhood into another. He is helpless. He is vulnerable. Um, There's nothing that he can do, you know. Um, And then the worst serial killer in the history of serial killers, the eyeball muncher, Corinthian, right, shows up rescuing Jed from a fire pan and then bringing him right into the fire. Now he needs Jed. So Jed is probably fairly safe. Um, He does not seem to be sexually interested in children. So that is also a nice thing. Um, But there is this sense of like, Oh my God! Enough already! And you know, and you know, not again. This is light spoilers. Next week we're going to see this even more, where Jed is just falling from fine pan to fire to hellfire into deep magma. It is just always he falls from one bad situation into an even worse one. Um, and to me, like I don't feel Jed that deeply as a character. Um, I just feel him as a motivation for Rose. I totally get you, although. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So I had this, this thought. Um, so back in my MFA days, one of the ways that people, you know, would criticize your work is they'd say it's manipulative. Yes. It's manipulative. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. they meant is I need for my character to go into the dark alley. So I'm going to have her stroll into the dark alley, despite mm-hmm. all these signs that she should not do so. Um, right. And I'm going to make her do that. There is one thing I'll say. So Jed has been isolated. Mm -hmm. We don't know how normal a life he's had. And he met a stranger who could look quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. And she turned out to be a protector. And that's Galt. So, yes. he's mm-hmm. had this major formative experience where someone who looks like a nightmare turns out to be a dream to him. And so, oh,
1: interesting because he does like and regardless of looks, like he has been deep in nightmare energy and that nightmare was actually good. So when he sees the Corinthian, because my first thing is like he sees another tall white man like get the hell out. You know, we're not trusting this guy. And yet he just jumps right into the car with him. But I think that you do. I think you have a good argument that there's nightmare energy there that he is essentially comfortable with. And even he may not realize why.
0: Yes. And and also that, you know, he's had this experience and he has a deep need for the Mm -hmm. Corinthian to be good. I also think functionally in this story. Uh, The Corinthian is more of an antihero, and you know, almost Mm -hmm. feels like Sandman's the real antagonist.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's that's an interesting idea. Well, okay, because your protagonist is the one. Um, whose POV we're in, who has an active goal that they're in Rose. pursuit of. Right. Like, you know, so we've got a lot of things, but, but yeah, so we've got, um, we've got Morpheus working as the antagonist for Rose, although they do work together a little bit. He is essentially using her to find Galt and Fiddler's Green and the Corinthian. Um, yeah. Interesting, interesting theory. I like it. I like it. Um, but you know, what's funny is like, I've never been in an MFA program, so I was not, but I've heard the term like manipulation before and it always bothers me because the whole point of fiction is to emotionally manipulate you. It is to present something to make you feel what we want you to feel in this story, you know? So, I mean, I get like, you don't want to break in character in order to serve plot. And I That's think that what that it is, is where there's a real problem. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it's not mm-hmm. it's not about emotionally manipulating. It really... And it, the it, reader. It's about manipulating the character.
0: Yes, it's about... It's, it's, it's about when... Uh, a reader sees the strings moving. And of course, yes. it's, mm-hmm. it's harder to escape this in genre. So one of, mm-hmm. one of the things about, uh, genre is you've got all of these tropes that, you know, it, it's, it, it's why genre is so difficult to write in a way because mm-hmm. you, you know what these required moves are. You know what a lot of these plots are going to be, but you want to convince the reader that this is coming out of an authentic place. It's like in, uh, Olympic ice skating when you know that the mm-hmm. skater has to perform a triple axel now but with the music and the flow you want it to look like a cool spontaneous dance move rather than right. huff huff now I better get this triple axel in
1: <laughs> very nice I like it all right so let's move into the favorite part Alisa what is your favorite part of playing house you know it, it it,
0: it's the corinthian i mean i just mm-hmm. cross-legged although why that would i mean just the fact that he can sit so casually cross-legged on the desk munching those you know how limber mm-hmm. he would be and his <laughs> his delight his fun i i mm-hmm. and of course the walking through the nightmares and the face
1: ripping. yeah i have no, two favorite parts really marks. good stuff You can have as many favorite parts as you want, honey. This is your podcast. But I do love, like, one of my favorite things is always somebody who is in love with their work. And I think that, like, the Corinthian definitely qualifies for that. Um, For me, I mean, I think that I've uh, played my card pretty early in the podcast, uh, Galt. I love Galt being Jed's man in the chair. That is one of my favorite things ever, playing along in this dreamland, trying to take this kid whose life is a nightmare and give him a safe space space, you know, um, and Galt's a complete offense when, uh, you know, when Morpheus is like, yeah, you're taking this kid and hiding out in his dreams and Galt is like, dude, you were nowhere. I found a space to make a, a safe place for this kid and I loved him. Like, you can see that she loved him as a mother um, and playing these, you know, setting up these scenarios with the Pied Piper and like all of these things that she's doing to give him a superhero existence, to give him a space where he's safe. And I think that like, there's so much beauty in everything that is Galt, everything that is Galt. Um, I love it so much. And at the end where she remains defiant while he is banishing her into darkness, right? Um, which is a bad freaking call. Uh, and I'm, I'm appreciating where we're going to go with that. But um, But yeah, I just, I love all of it so much. I think it's incredible. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chiprish and use the hashtag endless podcast or send your comments or questions to endless at chipperish.com. This episode of endless was edited by
0: Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, go to grad school and write a novel about me. But do it now while I'm still cute enough to play myself in the movie. We will be back next time with Collectors Episode 9 of Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Until then, even a nightmare can dream, my lord.